Good morning, family. It's good to see you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're very, very glad to have you with us. As we are working our way through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, what for us is 2 Corinthians, which is more likely a 4th Corinthians from the information we get from those letters. But for us in our Bibles, it's the second letter that we have from him to the Corinthian church. Our text this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7 through the end of the chapter. And please follow along with me as we read that section together. Paul writes, now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray, please. Lord, we pray that the Spirit who lifts the veil in Christ would be among us and present this morning to give us light and understanding According to your word, in in the blessings of the gospel and the blessings of the good news of the image of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Bless our time together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So for a quick review, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. There's been a lot of interpersonal conflict, a lot of difficulty, a lot of correction, A very difficult visit and a very painful letter that brought sorrow to the Corinthians, but also brought repentance that we're going to learn about later in the letter in more detail. So last week, Tyler opened up for us Paul's argument about these commendations of themselves. 
speaking of the letter that is written on the hearts of the people, and he referred at that point to the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant and some of the references there. Well, in the section this week, we're just continuing with this where there's this contrast between the Old Covenant and what God was doing there and the New Covenant in Christ and what God is doing among the Corinthians there. He ends the last section, verse 6, where he speaks of making us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And that opens up the theme between these two covenants, the covenant written on stone at Mount Sinai, given to Moses, taken to the people of Israel, together with the entirety of the law. And then what Paul argues is the work of the spirit that we saw from Ezekiel, but also we find in Jeremiah 31, 31, and what Paul expands on here. So he is really playing out this theme of the distinctiveness, the difference, the discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But a question arises here, what exactly is Paul doing in this section? Like, what's his point? What is he doing? Is he just extrapolating, extrapolating theological ideas, or does he have a purpose? Well, I think Paul, no matter what theological idea he's extrapolating always has a purpose behind it. He just doesn't do theology for theology's sake, but he has a specific agenda behind it. Now, as we read through this, it might give us the impression that he's dealing with the same kind of problems that he, for instance, deals with in the book of Colossians, or excuse me, Galatians, that Paul is responding in this section to correct bad ideas about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. Is this the same Judaizers who want to bring in the Old Testament law into the Gentile church? And often this text is read that way. Or is he dealing with the teachers who are the super apostles that we're going to deal with later? Is he dealing with a kind of a, a Judaism uh, super apostle? There are these Jews that are more Jewish than Paul, and they're bringing in these ideas of becoming more Jewish again. And often, including myself, I've read this text understanding that, that it has to do with these Judaizing false teachers, these super apostles, and I actually don't think that's the primary point. It has application to those things, but I don't think that's primarily what Paul's doing. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even fit into the flow and context of what he's saying here. He's going to deal with the false apostles later, but he's not doing that here. That argument of the difference of the law and of grace of the old covenant and the new covenant is appropriate to other letters and other contexts. I just don't think it's in place here, according to what he's been saying and in this section of the letter. And if it's not that, what exactly is he doing? Well, interestingly, Paul is making a theological argument for his boldness in Christ toward them. Remember, he, he's, he's written a letter that was very bold. He had a visit with them that was very difficult. And he's speaking of boldness and directly confronting them from this letter, like just with full candor and openness and writing, so much so that people were accusing of him of, of saying, well, Paul doesn't what, say what he really means in person he only does it in letter because, you know, that's just an easy way to get out of personal conflict is just write a letter and send it. But we're going to see there are a couple of key terms here where there's this beautiful Old Testament theology or, or this biblical theology of Old Covenant, New Covenant. 
and it's all buttressing his argument, for this reason we were very bold with you. And there, it's, it's amazing that, you know, Paul just doesn't say, well, I'm bold because, you know, I believe this is true or because you were in the wrong. He, he actually robustly brings us this beautiful explanation of the new covenant and the work of the spirit and the glory of Jesus to talk about how he can just be honest with them. It's, it's really a remarkable argument. Due to the work of the spirit, he can be bold because these people know Love, have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ and want to be like Jesus. So he says, I'm not veiling anything from you. I'm going to I'm going to show you everything. And this text, more than anything, is about glory. As a matter of fact, there are various forms of the Greek word for glory or glorify used 13 times in just the verses that we're going to look at here. So it's clearly what Paul is concerned here is about glory and an unveiling of glory as an argument for his open-faced interaction with them as a church. So how does he do this? First of all, verse 7 and 8, the ministry of death. And I'm, I'm going to go fairly, I'm going to attempt to go fairly quickly through these verses, and then I'm going to summarize what Paul is doing here in, in the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. But here he speaks of the ministry of death. And here it's the context, as will be see, clean, seen clearly, of what happens in Exodus 20. When God visits Mount Sinai after he has rescued Israel from Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, has now brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and is now going to make a covenant with Israel, which by the way, is a different covenant than what he has made with Abraham. This is an additional covenant. Abraham has, uh, the Abrahamic covenant has, has its own features and promises, but now he adds the law, which Abraham didn't have in the fullness of what we received. So we have dietary laws. We have laws about uh, c celebration of certain days. We have laws about judicial things. We've just got this whole body of law and the law itself is the covenant promise that the people who say we will do and we will fulfill and we will obey. And God says, OK, those are the terms of the covenant that you are to keep with me. And that's what he does there on Mount Sinai. And it begins with the heart of the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of bondage in Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any images. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall not. Uh, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You should not. Uh, you shall honor mother and father. You shall not murder. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And what they say in response to him is not idy then. What they do is they cry out to Moses. Please tell God to stop talking to us. You talk to him for us and talk to us for him. And they're crying out because of the glory and of the, the horror and of the terror of Mount Sinai. We cannot bear the burden of the glory of God. And when God lays out these things, they say, we, 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 we want to do these things, but we cannot bear your glory. And so that's some of what's going on here. And it's also going to be referencing later when the tent of meeting was set up and Moses goes out to the tent of meeting and the Shekinah glory of God comes on that tent of meeting. And there the glory is revealed to Moses who 
Remember earlier in the story, God says, you can't see my glory and live. You will only see my backside. I will cover you with my hand as I pass by. I'm the Lord, merciful. And And then yet he's meeting him in glory such that his body is glowing. And to spare the people, he covers his face with a veil. So there's some interesting things going on there, but that that's the that's the Old Testament context. But as glorious as that seems, as amazing as all that seems, Paul has some very negative things to say about that covenant. Notice what he says. It's first of all, he calls it a ministry of death. Now, if the ministry of death. So what does the law ultimately do? It didn't bring life. It killed people that the law was added because of sin. But the law did not in its of itself bring life. It was a death covenant. The majority, it seems, of the people, because there's always a remnant of Israel saved according to grace by faith. But by and large, the community of the old covenant people is lost in sin and separated from God. So how did the, the experiment of the Mosaic law go? It mostly killed everybody. And so this is what he calls the ministry of death. It's the ministry of death carved in in letters on stone. So he's specifically speaking of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Because you'll remember the Ten Commandments are written on stone. And then when they say, don't speak to us anymore, Moses then hears the rest of the law and all of the obligations and all of the the laws. And he writes it in, in what's called the book. And then they sprinkle blood on the book. And the book is separate from the stone. So here, the stone is specifically speaking of Sinai and the Ten Commandments. But those letters carved in stone, which, by the way, God carved with his own finger. Moses did not, like, hammer that out. It's said that God carved into the stone with his own finger. And then when Moses gets upset and breaks it because the covenant has been broken as a symbol of the idolatry of Israel, he says, make another set of stone, bring up, and I will write, God says, on this. So it's clearly referring to the stone. But that ministry of death comes with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. They came out and he was so shining from this reflective glory. They weren't looking directly in the face of God, but even the reflection of the face of God, they terrified them. And so Moses covers his face as a mercy. God covers his face to spare the Israelites from their own death. And that glory which we are told was being brought to an end. And I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment. But he says, this is how he talks about the old covenant, ministry of death, letters of stone, such glory, it had to be veiled. He says, if you think that's glorious, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Even more glory than Sinai. Even more glory than Moses' face. Even more glory than was found in the tabernacle of meeting that Moses was seeing. Even more glory than the hiding of the face of God in the cleft of the rock as he passed by Moses. So here's this thing that Paul says has glory. He says, but the ministry of the Spirit has even more glory. Second, In verses 9 through 11, he speaks of the Old Covenant as a ministry of condemnation, which is connected then with death. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of death, 
I mean, how, how would you like that? What kind of ministry are you in? Oh, we're in a ministry of death around here. What kind of ministry do you have at your church? Well, we have the ministry of death. We have the ministry of condemnation. It's like, <laughs> would you like to come and visit? No, nah, not really. <laughs> Thanks. We'll pass on that one. But that's what, that's what he says about this stepping stone of unfolding revelation to get to Jesus. Compared to Jesus, it's a ministry of condemnation. The law was added because of sin, but trying to keep the law did not justice, justify somebody. Trying to keep the law and keep the commandments. And I mean, there were a certain set of commands that we have between Abraham and Moses. It's like fail, 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 fail. I know what we'll do. We'll just add a bunch more laws and see how you do with that. It doesn't get any better. It's like, okay, where the, the where, where transgression abounds, the law is added and it doesn't suppress disobedience. It actually exacerbates disobedience because now you're just more guilty of new, more things that you didn't even know you would have been guilty of before the law came. Paul says of it in Romans, when the, when the law came, sin revived and I died. And so Paul's very invested in this idea of the old covenant being a ministry of condemnation. He says, but if, if, if there was glory in that, and there was, by the way, the ministry of righteousness. And here he's speaking of the ministry of the righteousness of the person of Jesus who perfectly obeyed God's law, was born under the law, was born a Jew, was circumcised, was born uh, under the entire Mosaic law and always obeyed the law perfectly in word and thought and deed, and he became the true and perfect Jew and the per true and perfect son of David so that he has a righteousness which he imparts to those who have faith in him. Like 100% requirement fulfilled. Everything is done. Everything is completed that gets transferred to the believer and follower of Jesus so that it's not then a ministry of condemnation. It's a ministry of righteousness. He says, if there's glory in this one, this glory over here must far exceed it. Indeed, in this case, he says it's like this, and it's an, it's an image. I mean, imagine a candle at night, outside, on a cloudy night where the moon is at its thinnest and the stars are not out and it's cloudy. That, you know, you look into a field and you see that candle. If that's all the light that you have, it, it, it casts enough light to see and to maybe even to read by and to, you know, figure out where your camping gear is. Or, But in the middle of the day, when it's high noon and it's a clear sky and the sun comes out, how much light does that cast? It's like, oh, wow, here we are at noonday. Oh, oh I'm going to read something, so I should probably get this candle out so I can see better. It's like it doesn't do anything. That that's what's going on here, that the old covenant is a candle that in the darkness shines brightly. But Jesus under the new covenant is the bright noonday sun that eclipses all other light before it. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have. Paul says this about the old covenant, no glory at all. And it's not because it's not glorious but it's because of the surpassing glory of the light that comes after it. Do you see? It doesn't put out the light. It supersedes the light. It exceeds the light because of the glory that surpasses it. 
Then he says this, for if what was being brought to an end, why is that? Because God designed from the end for the old covenant to end. He had it built into the system. It was the operating system that in 33-ish AD, that the old covenant would become obsolete because of the, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. It was built into the system. The promises it made, the, the, the prophecies that it gave, everything that it said is pointing to Jesus. And when Jesus comes online, the old covenant goes offline forever. It was being brought to an end. It was made to be obsolete. But it's only obsolete in Christ. He says, if that's the case, much more will what is permanent have glory. Once Christ comes online, the light of the world, he never goes offline. For eternity, he is the light. He is the greater glory. And what he does by the Spirit in the new covenant lasts forever, undoing or making obsolete the old covenant law. Okay, so pr pretty dense, amazing theology Paul has here. And notice what he says in verses 12 through 14 then. Since we have such hope that we believe in this covenant of greater glory found in Jesus, a ministry of righteousness, a ministry of life, the giving of the Spirit. Since we have this hope, and here's the centerpiece of the entire section. This is his argument. We are very bold. We are very bold because the veil's been taken off and we can speak bluntly to you about righteousness. We can speak bluntly to you about obedience. We can speak bluntly to you about what it is to live as a Christian. We can speak bluntly to you and plainly to you and with candor because we're not veiling anything because the greater glory of Christ assumes that when you are in, you want the same glory. You want the same righteousness. You want to walk in obedience. You want to walk in a ministry that brings life and a life that brings human flourishing. That's the centerpiece of this entire section. Because we have the hope of the greater glory of the new covenant, we're just very bold. We don't, we don't shrink back. We're not kind of you know, hiding things in the dark. We're not kind of uncertain about what we're teaching and saying. We're, we're very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to him. We're not like that, again. But their minds were hardened. Their minds were even hardened when the glory of God was covered up. Their minds were hardened. When they came into contact with the law and the presence of God, it hardened them. But now when we come into contact with the glory of God and the law, it transforms us. You've probably heard it said that you take a stick of butter and you take a lump of clay and expose both of those to the same sun. One hardens and one softens and melts and is usable to make a delicious dish. And that's the difference that in Christ, because our hearts have been changed, exposure to the glory of God and to the law of God under the old covenant hardened us. Under the new covenant, it softens and transforms us and makes us into something beautiful. 
Verses 14 and 16, the veil removed for to this day. Now he's going to speak about the Jews who still are holding on to the law. And I'm going to say here that it's not only true of Paul's day of what he says about Jews here. I'm going to assert that it's true of Jews who love their Hebrew scriptures to this day. That the diagnosis Paul makes here of them back then is the same today for those Jews, Orthodox Jews who believe the Bible and who are looking for Messiah. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, speaking of the Jewish people, we're right, we're, we're talking about, you know, Paul writing in the first century here, that same veil. And so he says, you know, that veil that was on Moses, it's still on. And so he met, he uses a transfer of metaphor from a veil that was literally physically covering the face of Moses he says, the veil remains unlifted on the people who read the scriptures. And the only way he says that the veil can be lifted is through Christ. They can know their Bible, memorize their Bible, know Hebrew, know the history, know their Old Testament theology, be steeped in the traditions of the Old Covenant, and they're doing it with a veil that lies over their eyes so that they can't see. They can't see the glory. It's hidden from them. And how is the veil taken away? It's only through Christ. When one comes to Christ, he takes the veil off and says, now you can see me. Only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, again, he changes metaphor. It used to be. Moses was the one who was wearing the veil. Now he's transferred it to the veil is not over the scriptures. The veil is over their heart. The problem is not with the light. The problem is with the receptor of the light, the spiritual eyes. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. One trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Suddenly they're able to see the Old Testament scriptures and the glory of God in the face of Jesus and the son of David and all that it is. And begin to not chuck the Old Testament and say, well, we don't need the Old Testament now. No, the veil is removed so they can actually see Christ in it. And so if that's true of them, then that's certainly true of us, that if the veil has been lifted, we should be paying very close attention to Christ and the revelation of him in the Hebrew scriptures. And then finally, verse 17 and 18, spiritual freedom, beholding and transforming. Now, the Lord is the spirit. So he's talking about the work of turning to Christ, of the lifting of the veil, spoke previously of the work of the spirit written on the heart. And he says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And again, the, the temptation here is to talk about freedom from the law in obedience to the law. And that's not really Paul's context here. Freedom here, I'm going to liken in parallel to the boldness that he has with them. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom to speak the word. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's the freedom to exhort and rebuke and encourage. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom for the ministers of God to speak the word of God that doesn't bring death. It actually brings life. 
Paul's argument here is I've spoken the truth of Christ to you because we're under a better covenant and you've had the veil taken off of your eyes and you can behold the glory of God and be transformed. Therefore, I'm not hiding anything from you. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He's not talking about freedom from the law in this case. He's not talking about freedom from the the requirements of the old covenant. He does that in Galatians and Colossians. But here... Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is a liberty and freedom to bring the word to a new covenant people who are being transformed because they've had the veil lifted and see the glory of Christ. And we all with unveiled face, and here's one reason we can see this. We all with unveiled face, the freedom is that we see the glory of the Lord. With unveiled face, now he's moved, <laughs> now now he's moved the veil back up to the face. It's not clear whose face this is. Is it our face? Is it the face of Christ as the mediator of the new covenant? He's, he's playing with his metaphor and just using it all different kind of ways. So we all with unveiled face, behold, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being. So what happened in the old covenant was the glory of the Lord hardened people and brought condemnation. Now in Christ... And here's where the metaphor changes again. We take away the veil and who do we see? We see Christ. We're seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus is the one through whom we can see the glory of God and not be killed. Trying to look at God's glory, trying to look at righteousness, trying to look at obedience without Christ is deadly. But now when we look on the face of Christ, there's something that happens there for the one who's had the veil lifted. There is a love and there is a transformation that begins to happen. We with unveiled face are being transformed into the same image. And how does that happen? You look once and you're totally transformed. No, it's from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another. Well, if you've seen Jesus, everything has changed. Well, yes, but also no. As you behold Jesus, things are being changed over time from one degree of glory to another. Something like that. And as we are changed, I believe even the degree of the glory in which we see in Christ also increases. So the glory of God as a maturing Christian that we see over the years is a greater glory than what we we even saw as young Christians. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay, so that's Paul's argument, I believe, for boldness and freedom and liberty to bring about exhortation and even admonishment and rebuke. And they have responded well. This is his his saying, this is why we are sufficient ministers of the new covenant, because God has given us such boldness because of the work of the Spirit in us and the work of the Spirit in you. And so let's contrast kind of in summary here, the old covenant under Moses. I mean, this is not a flattering, a very flattering picture. I mean, how would you like these things said about you? (laughs) The old covenant ministry of death carved in letters of stone being brought to an end. Ministry of condemnation once had glory has come to have no glory at all being brought to an end needed to be veiled hardened minds and the veil remains unlifted. And Paul says every Jewish believer or even I would say every Christian 
who has not had the veil lifted, someone who appears to be a churchgoer, tries to be obedient, tries to be a good person, who has not had the veil lifted in Christ, this is all true of them. So Paul says then the ministry of the Spirit in turning to Christ, this is the better, more glorious covenant that we are under. Rather than being an old covenant, it's a new covenant. Instead of being a ministry of death, it's a ministry of the Spirit. Instead of being carved in letters of stones, it's written on the heart. Instead of being brought to an end, it is permanent. Instead of a ministry of condemnation, it's a ministry of righteousness. Though the one once had glory, but now it has uh, the new covenant has a, a glory that far exceeds it. The old covenant has come to have no glory at all. The new covenant has surpassing glory. The old covenant was being brought to an end. And I would say now, according to Hebrews, has been brought to an end. The new covenant gives hope and hope looks forward and doesn't have an end. The old covenant needed to be veiled. The new covenant, the veil is removed. The old covenant hardens minds. The new covenant brings freedom to minds. Old covenant, the veil remains unlifted. And the new covenant beholds the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so this new covenant, Paul is arguing here, transforms us into the image of the same image of Christ's glory. So he filters, if you will, through compassion, mercy, sacrifice, and forgiveness. And if you will, enables us to bear the glory of God because we have been forgiven in him. And as we look at his face of mercy and compassion and forgiveness and pity, what happens then? We are transformed into that same image of mercy and forgiveness and grace and holiness because we are beholding the face of Christ. Now the law, speaking of the moral dimensions of the law, as 1 John says, is not burdensome. It's hard and difficult and death-inducing to our remaining sin, but it's not the law that is burdensome. It is the law that expresses then the love and obedience to God and to neighbor that we now as new covenant believers long for. So some quick applications here. First of all, the Old Testament scriptures are not, we see from this passage, tossed aside in the new covenant. They're they're not just like, well, none of that matters anymore. No, there's glory there. But it's not the glory as being seen from the perspective within the covenant. The only way you can really see the glory of the old covenant is to be in the new covenant. And now you don't look at the Old Testament and say, I don't want anything with that. No. Now when we read the veil is lifted and we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and the story that unfolds about who Jesus is coming into the new covenant. They are unveiled and made glorious as revealing our need for Jesus. Secondly, we see that obedience to God's law, apart from the righteousness of Jesus, either produces one of two things. One is condemnation. And that's what Paul focuses on here. Ministry, look, look, whoever you are, without Jesus, you just try to obey the Bible, be a good Christian, uh, come to church, do the right things, and so on. You know what it's going to do? It's going to kill you and condemn you. Sorry. Doesn't matter how sincere you are, how earnestly you're trying 
It's death-inducing by its very design. But the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of righteousness and turning to Jesus and saying, I have no righteousness of my own. I have nothing to bring to Jesus. I have nothing to bring to God by my own righteousness to earn me merit with him. My righteousness is all in Christ. The only other thing that you will do once you feel the pressure of the law condemning you is to step into your own godhood and develop your own self-righteousness. That's what the Pharisees did. Pharisees don't act like they're very condemned, do they? They, they, they're not walking around like, oh, no, we're dead in here and whatever. No, the ministry of condemnation made them step out from under God's law to create their own laws. I've, I've seen that over the years. I remember a friend that I worked with. Sorry, from yesterday's meeting, an associate that I worked with back at Office Depot many years ago who had started um, dating a, a Seventh-day Adventist young lady. And suddenly he comes, he comes back and starts giving me lectures about sugar and caffeine and pork and all this kind of stuff. And I said, aren't you guys living together? He's like, we, we, yeah. Y'all having sex, aren't you? Well, yeah. And you want to talk to me about sugar and pork? Because what happened? Under the law... He was now designing his own law. He says, well, but we love one another and we this or that. And I was like, I'm not buying it, friend. I'm just not buying it. He had created his own boundaries of self-righteousness. And that's what you will do if you try to live under an obedience covenant, an obedience-oriented covenant. You will create your own laws. You will let yourself go under other laws. And what you've essentially done is ascended Mount Sinai on your own and declared the law to yourself by which you can obey. That's self-righteousness. And apart from Jesus, it's either condemnation or self-righteousness. And you know what? They will both equally damn. They will be both equally condemned. But obedience to God's law as fruit of faith in Jesus produces hope and an exaltation of Christ's righteousness. It's not because I'm obeying in order to be pleasing to God in a way that puts me into a relationship with him. But it's receiving the love of God and the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So now when I obey, it's a, a, it's a love obedience. It's not a merit obedience. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. It comes from a man under the old covenant who had the Holy Spirit. We also see from this text, seeing God's face in the old covenant was deadly. Seeing God's face in Jesus Christ now for us is life-giving. That's why we sing songs like in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Or show me Christ. I won't attempt that one. Show me Christ. Why? Because he's more than a theological proposition. He is the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when the veil is lifted and the spirit is working and we are actively engaged in pursuing God together as a church, we begin to see God's glory from one degree of glory to another. And seeing Christ is life-giving. 
We also see from this text, the new covenant community is to be marked by glory, boldness, and transformation. It's to be marked by glory, boldness, and transformation. We need to have the thick skinned enough that when a brother or sister lovingly, graciously brings us, as we say in our covenant, gracious confrontation, our identity is not devastated. Oh no, somebody found a chink in my armor. Friend, it's amazing you have any armor on at all. You know how many chinks you have? And if somebody points it out, it's for your safety and my safety. For someone to come and to bring sin to us, one of the marks of the new covenant and the work of the Spirit when he is functioning in a way that is healthy in a believer is to say, may the righteous smite me. It will be as oil on my head. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I mean, I I don't have any reputation to defend. You want to know how bad I am? Look at the cross. That's what I deserve. That's what your pastor deserves. Is to be nailed to the cross, whipped and killed. That's how bad he is. And when we identify that, when somebody comes and says, what you said there was a little harsh. Well, we're going to defend that? Well, well, I was justified in what I was saying. like, are you kidding? Man, that, that's an easy adjustment compared to the cross. <laughs> you were a little hard on the kids. I think you're being a little picky. I think you're being a, a little bit uh, persnickety about this. I think you're acting a little proud. I'm saying, okay. okay, well, whatever you're saying about me is not nearly as bad as what is actually true. Therefore, I'm all ears. Why? Because in the New Covenant, there's, there's freedom and there's liberty for us to speak boldly and not with a veil. Again, doesn't mean we're rude, doesn't mean we're crude, doesn't mean we're just jerks about it, but it does mean a community of openness when it comes to being transformed to his glory. This in part is because instead of a condemnation and shame, Oh no, I've been caught. Oh no, somebody's saying something about, bad about me. What do you do with that? Do you feel guilt and shamed and crushed? Well, my friend, you need to look on the face of Jesus more. Because the law, when it comes now, brings freedom and liberty and transformation. And it's easy to slip into an old covenant mentality when somebody catches us in our sin. Or confronts us in our sin. We're functioning under the rules of the old covenant when our sin is corrected and we are marked by shame and guilt because there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus removes our shame, He clothes us with His righteousness. So now it's not that person coming to condemn us, it's God graciously speaking to them. To us through them to transform us into his image. Praise the Lord from one degree of glory to another. I think we also see from this text that we should be cautious of teachings that move back toward old covenant practices. Telling us we are missing out if we don't recover the practices found there. Well, you know. There's just some things back there that have such amazing, great glory. It's like once you've seen the glory of Christ. 
I can look with an unveiled face and appreciate how those lead up to it. But to say I can see more of Christ by practicing the the methodologies of the old covenant doesn't make sense. Which doesn't mean we can't learn how it pointed to Christ. But it's like, oh, you are really missing out. No, don't tell me that I'm missing out on the candle because I'm gazing at the sun. Oh, there's, there's some really great light here. It's like, I got all the light I need. It's the greater glory far exceeding that one has surpassed. I'm talking about the Mosaic law and I'm talking about the, the, you know, the, the dietary laws and I'm talking about the, the laws of the, of the different feast days and things like that. There are interesting historical artifacts and things which were meaningful rooted in the Jewish old covenant. But as Gentile, largely new covenant Christians... We see it as pointing to Christ, but have no need to get more out of Jesus through it. I think that's what this text is clearly teaching us. It has come to have no glory at all. So we should be cautious when somebody says, oh, you're really missing out on who Jesus is if you don't go do X, Y, Z. Just just be cautious of that. Amen. Well, let's pray and... uh, Ask that the Lord would continue to work his spirit in us as he has promised to show us Jesus. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the apostle writing out such clear distinctives. And we pray, please give us understanding according to your word. Please work in us hope and boldness and From one degree of glory to another, make us more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.